I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and today I'm talking to Colm Tobin, who's written a piece in the current issue of the LRB on one of the great, or terrible, literary love triangles of the 20th century. The piece is a review of two books, a new edition of Robert Lowell's 1972 collection, The Dolphin, edited by Saskia Hamilton, and The Dolphin Letters, 1970-79, to Elizabeth Hardwick, Robert Lowell and Their Circle, also edited by Saskia Hamilton. Hello, Colin. Thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you? Lowell once described his poetry as my autobiography in verse, and before we get to the writing, we really need to talk about the writers' lives. The breakdown of Hardwick and Lowell's marriage seems to have happened very suddenly, 50 years ago, in April 1970, at a party in London. Do you want to take us through that story, which you begin your piece with? Lowell, I suppose, he comes to us as a poet in various guises, but he was very famous, really, when he was very young, and um, he's married to Elizabeth Hardwick, um, who, who was really one of those sort of fierce literary critics um, working for various magazines in New York. Um, so when they, when, they, when they met and married, they, re- they, re- they really were a very sort of powerful and serious literary couple in New York. Part of their power arose from the fact that it was, um, they were both involved with the founding of the New York Review of Books, and um, they lived um, on the Upper West Side, and um, there, there really was a sense of them as um, living the life of the mind in New York and um, associating with very interesting um, literary people. And Lowell had a trust fund, and that made a difference. It meant they had a nice house in Maine, in Castine, and a nice apartment in New York, and um, they had a daughter called Harriet. Obviously, the marriage was, um, it was, it was really punctuated by Lowell's mental breakdowns, uh, which would occur in a very strange way. In other words, he, he would become hyper, and he would um, become fascinated by Napoleon or by Hitler. He might eventually think he was Hitler. There often would be a young woman involved, it would take a long time to get him down from the state he was in, the manic state, and he would um, often have to be incarcerated. Elizabeth Hardwick took him through all this, and she wrote very beautifully about him that no matter what he was doing, he was interested in finding out one more thing, in you know, reading Latin poetry, in translating from the Greek, or just finding a whole new style, as he did when he moved, for example, from I mean, those very overwrought early poems, um, the Quaker Graveyard in Nantucket and poems like that, which are really overwrought, highly wrought, you know, filled with coiled sort of um, phrases and um, big clanging rhyme schemes and big risks taken with lines like, I am cold, I ask for bread, my father gives me mold. 
uh, you know, Hooker's heel of kicking at nothing in the shifting snow, the cannon and the cannibal. The, 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 the cannon cannot stun the blundering butcher as he rides on time. And um, he gave all that up for a much more relaxed style in books like For the Union Dead and Life Studies, so that he became a poet whose style changed. His, some of his style became confessional, um, meaning that he wrote about his own breakdowns, he wrote about his own family, and this became very fashionable. And uh, he was at the very centre of things. And also, as the Vietnam War um, began to rage, he really, from the very early on, took an enormous exception to the bombings and did anything he could to protest against that. He appears as a figure, a very interesting figure, in Norman Mailer's The Armies of the Night. But he was the one who, when Lyndon Johnson wanted to have a, a sort of nice dinner for artists, which he thought would please the ladies, Lowell accepted which left him in a very powerful position because he could then very soon afterwards withdraw, which he did on the advice of Robert Silvers, who um, did it on the advice of Philip Roth. In other words, like they couldn't believe he was going to go to this dinner in Bonnach when Lyndon Johnson was doing the bombing. But his, his withdrawal was very public, was very well done. There was a beautiful letter written explaining why he couldn't do this. And so, so he became a sort of public figure, and obviously then um, he was beginning to work on these sonnets arising, I think, partly from the fact that he was using lithium, which was really doing him a lot of good. And was really, um, so the, the attacks were coming less. And he decided he would go to All Souls Oxford um, and with the, with the idea that he would go to the University of Essex for two years after that. In other words, they would move to England for a while. They're, they're, their daughter was 13 or 14 and um, they were both in their early 50s and they had been in holidays in Italy and the, Elizabeth Hardwick and her daughter went back to New York. Lowell went on to England. Um, we can trace the days. So we can see the letters from them. Hardwick, of course, would have loved a literary party. She shone at such events. You know, she knew who to talk to and what to say to them. And she was a very, very engaging individual. But she couldn't go to the favourite party. Lola's going to come down four days after arriving in Oxford to London. Favour was giving a party for him. And at that party arrived Lady Caroline Blackwood. I have to say, I, I didn't, I didn't, this is 1970. I wouldn't have known her until about a decade or more later. But she, even then, um, she would have been about 50, was a really beautiful and um, very, very funny and really amazingly interesting person. Every word she said was interesting. She sort of took a dark view of humanity. Her mother was Maureen Guinness, who was an heiress, and she, her father was the Marquess of Dufferin and Ava, and she's brought up in a big pile of a house in Northern Ireland. And she'd married Lucy Freud, and then um, she had three daughters with another guy who she'd married called Israel Chitavis, who was a composer. And, um, I mean, she was really beautiful, and she was also tremendous company. And she was... In a relationship with Bob Silvers at the time. Is that right? Well, Robert Silvers, the editor of the New York Review? Or she yeah, I mean, she was, she was having some... So, I mean, Lowell had met her before because she had been, when she was living in New York with her daughters, she had gone out with Robert Silvers, come to the Lowell's house with Silvers. And I mean, wonderfully, he was warned beforehand. He's only interested in poetry. Don't talk to him about anything else. Everything else bores him. So she said, well, there's no point in me asking him, what do you think of Hausman? So I just say nothing at all. So she sat through the evening and then eventually she said something about the soup being good and he said he thought it was ghastly. So you know, they, they, they knew one another and there was, yes, um, Robert Silvers um, wrote to Lowell when he was going to England, you should really meet Caroline when you're there. And well, he did. He met her at the favourite party and famously um, they went home to her place in London and uh, that night, I mean that night, and he didn't leave again.
and um, he uh, didn't explain this to Hardwick. Um, she knew quite quickly there was something wrong. I mean, he wasn't getting in touch, and uh, it was a tense phone call. The, we have to remember, um, as good historians, that um, phone calls at that time, 1970, were really strange and difficult things, and making a transatlantic phone call was an enormous transaction. People didn't do it much. And the phone calls between them, in any case, were unsatisfactory, but the, but the cost of them, and anyway, the phone didn't work, luckily, because they had to write letters. And um, eventually, um, Elizabeth Hardwick found out uh, who it was he was with. And she writes a wonderful letter to Mary McCarthy just saying, I just laughed out loud. I mean, she just insisted that she found his relationship with Caroline to be comic, in that Caroline, she thought, was not a serious person. And, um, of course, she was. Um, she certainly was a serious person. So what happens then is that she begins to write to him in a rage. I mean, he will not get in touch. She has this daughter to deal with. And he's basically abandoned the daughter. And um, he, she, she begins to couch her rage in moral terms, meaning, you know, you are a serious person. You are a New England, you know, figure. You, you, you brought up a, with, with great numbers of sort of moral certitudes. And you're with this loose aristocrat being loose in London, being loose in England. This is not who you are. I know who you are. This is not who you are. This will destroy you. So the letters went on. Obviously, they became practical letters about money and about houses and about visits back and forth. Of course, Lowell, absolutely careless, um, let her know that when he was coming to New York that first, you know, having met her, met Caroline Blackwood in April, he was thinking of coming to New York for Christmas but he was going to bring Caroline with him. So suddenly she's going to have, you know, Lowell circling around her, her world, because it was very much their world in New York. And suddenly he would be bringing Caroline Blackwood. And she said, I'll go to the Caribbean. I'll get out of here. If you bring Caroline, I'm getting out of here. And I'm being carried with me. So he came on his own. And, um, he, I mean, he wrote to her, frankly, at one point, to say, I'm not coming back, you know. But um, she did think he would, because he'd always done it before. And then she learned that Caroline was pregnant. And she wrote Caroline a letter, which Saskia Hamilton, in a beautifully edited book, by the way, the footnoting is amazing. It isn't just the footnoting, it gives you information. The footnoting adds, often if there's a, a paragraph from another letter by someone else that's pertinent, it'll, it'll be there. And uh, anyway, um, she, um, it, it goes on, in other words, um, until a rumor begins that Lowell is writing another you know, he's writing sonnet after sonnet. He writes, he writes to Frank Biddart, the poet, who's known from bosses that can you come over because there are so many sonnets now. I mean, I would say, said in the pieces like King Midas, you know, if he had a thought, it was a sonnet. If he had a memory, if he read a book or half a book or a book review, he wrote a sonnet. You know, that it was all, and um, he, he, wanted to mix them up more, to put them in different orders, to take lines from one and put it in another, different titles. So he published a book called Notebook in 1968. He published a second version. I mean, he was so famous that he could publish a second version of a book a year after the first version. As uh, you know, he, was, he was really at that, at, you know, there was no poet in that position in those years. And uh, he wanted to then have three books, which these three books came out in 1973, which were um, a big book called History, which were all the sort of history poems from... They were sonnets. Sestet, Oxtet, all the way. I mean, it was uh, Octet all the way. It was just sonnet. 
sonnets. And I mean, it was madness. And um, some, of, some of the sonnets in history are really great, but some of the lines are great. But overall, the book's untidy. Um, some of the poems are terrible. The book probably should not have been published. And then there's a smaller book called Berlizian Harriet. But the third book, these all came out on the same day in hardback. I mean, it was really an amazing moment. And Lola's right. The third book wasn't fully noticed on our side of the Atlantic as to what exactly he had done. A rumor began that he was going to write one single book about the breakup of his marriage to Elizabeth Hardwick and the beginning of his relationship with Caroline Blackwood. Lizzie, Elizabeth Hardwick wrote to him about it, saying she didn't care one way or the other. But his friends started to see the poems um, the main one being Elizabeth Bishop. And Elizabeth Bishop realized what he had done. That in the middle of the of Dolphin, he takes letters that he got, these anguished, raging letters from Hardwick, and he simply makes them into sonnets. And they're in inverted commas, they're clearly a letter from her, and they're sonnets. And she didn't realize he had done this. She knew he'd done something, but she didn't know this. And Bishop... Elizabeth Hardwick didn't know this, but he had changed some lines in the letters. He had adapted them. He had edited them. He'd added things to them. And Bishop wrote to him to say, don't let anyone tell you this isn't art. I mean, these poems are really um, very good, but it isn't worth it. Art sometimes isn't worth it. And um, the anguish you're going to cause, what you've done it's just mischief, in other words, changing her letters um, and even publishing them. So Bishop wrote to him quite severely on the matter. And, uh, and other people did too, didn't they? The yeah, Auden yeah, and Adrian yeah, Rich. Yeah. And... I, mean, I mean, anyone he knew, but Christopher Ricks actually was much more interested in the technical side of things, but friends who knew Elizabeth Hardwick, who were in that circle, um, William Alfred and various other people like that, Stanley Kunitz, wrote to him to say, you can't do this to her. And we'll just break her heart if you do this to her. And he didn't let her know. And he sent, um, he wrote to her to say, um, I'm sending just one of the books, meaning the big book history to Harriet, the stage is about 15 or 16. Um, but I'm going to send you the three. And I'm really pleased with, I'm really happy with these books. This is my achievement. And she got the three books and she looked at the third and realized what he had done. He had actually, without her permission or her knowledge, had taken her letters, written in haste, written in anguish. I should say this, that he was, she was selling his papers at the beginning of all this. And she was aware uh, that their correspondence, what it would look like in the future. She was aware of their fame. But these letters looked like they're written in the heat of the moment without any interest in posterity. Just she needs to get something uh, you know, off her chest today in, into the post. So she wrote to Farrah Strauss in New York, Robert Giro. She wrote to um, Faber to say, um, how could you, I mean, what were you thinking about that you could do this to me? I mean, I, I, you know, that you didn't get my permission. I didn't know this was going to happen, etc. And so she becomes the sort of hysterical wife um, in this triangle, the, the one that everyone's afraid of. What's, what's Lizzie going to do next? Is she going to sue, for example? And, and they mentioned that between, between the publishers and Lowell. Is she going to sue? And um, the book wins the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, the, the single volume, The Dolphin, wins the Pulitzer Prize, which is a sort of slap in the face for her. I, I, and um, and know, also people, for him, possibly, I mean, the sense of he, these three books. and Yeah, but the other two books were really made up of poems from Notebook that had, yeah. had already appeared twice. That they really... This book, the story, the single story of the marriage breakup and the new love relationship. And these poems, it's, it's still an uneven book, 
but there's a sense of, I suppose, the, the, the tone is more hushed. The iambic beat is less certain. The sound is of a man who's really even more bewildered now that he has made these decisions for his life. There's no sense of triumph or happiness or any sort of glee, you know, any sort of, look, um, I needed to do this for my, for my life, for the sake of my happiness. It isn't like that. It's all melancholy. There are two poems about being back in New York, and it's really as though he's living in a sort of aftermath of his own life. They're, 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 so it's a very affecting book, oddly, oddly. And when you come to her voice the first time, it, it's really no good. It's, it's, it reads like a letter. But there are a few moments in the book where a full sonnet is her in a rage. And oddly enough, those poems work as poems, not all the time, but sometimes, as indeed do letters from Caroline Blackwood that are used in the same way. So uh, oddly enough, The Dolphin, after all this time, despite the fact it's the very book we would not need at this particular moment. In other words, it's filled with male privilege, with this man deciding what letters he will use or not use, or that his own feelings are are important. I think 50 years later, I think people would just tell the man to go away. He would find it, I think, even difficult to publish them, let alone win the Pulitzer Prize or have the book's praise. So that, I mean, it's it's just... Time has moved, but strangely, the book The Dolphin has a sort of funny, hushed, sad power to it that that stays on. You're listening to the LRB podcast. The LRB has a new newsletter called Diverted Traffic, which features a different piece from the paper's archive each day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed. And the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic. That's lrb.me forward slash traffic. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Well, what happens next is that Lowell really can't make up his mind where he wants to go and what he wants to do. He has a child with Caroline Blackwood, but eventually he thinks he might come back to New York. And um, th- there's an extraordinary moment where he's in Castletown House, where, where they've moved from um, Caroline Blackwood and himself have moved from England to Ireland, and they're in Castletown House in County Kildare, and he's to go to New York. But he wants to go into Dublin the previous night, but he can't get out. The house is so big that he can't get out of it. <laughs> cannot find an, a window that opens or a door that isn't locked. And he spends the night trying to bang at things to see if there's any way out of this house. And the house is enormous, one of the biggest houses in Ireland. Eventually, in the morning, the maid comes and lets him out. He goes to the airport and he has with him, which he has bought, Lucian Freud's portrait of Caroline Blackwood, a small portrait of Caroline Blackwood. He's bringing with him to get valued in New York. It's been a big investment. And then... Um, he gets on the flight, he gets a taxi, and he dies in the taxi in, this, um, in, this, in I think, it's September 1977. And um, afterwards, Elizabeth Hardwick wondered where were her letters. And she'd asked him um, in the year, the time before he died, you know those letters I wrote to you that you made into those sonnets? And any idea where they are? I'd love to see them. Um, obviously, she didn't keep copies. They were written in white heat, and uh, he said he couldn't find them. What happened after his death was that Caroline Blackwood sent them uh, to um, 
Caroline Blackwood sent them to Frank Biddart. Frank Biddart kept them for a while, and then he put them into the Lowell Archive uh, at Harvard, at the Houghton. And he, um, with a note saying, these, these actually belong to the Lowell estate, they don't actually belong to me, and they're to be kept sealed and closed until the death of Elizabeth Hardwick. So Elizabeth Hardwick didn't, didn't get to see them. But what she did then in the years when Lowell was away was she wrote her two best books. The book Sleepless Nights, which is a strange mixture of a novel and a memoir, has become a really important book in America. It opened up a lot of space, especially for women who wanted to write about their own lives in a way that was oblique, that was literary, that was confessional, but in a, in a very serious um, inner sort of um, inward-looking way and that, that would come as images and rather than a say, straightforward narrative. I think it's been a really important book in, for example, perhaps someone like Rachel Cusk, even someone like Maggie Nelson, someone like um, Chris Krauss. I think it's just opened up a lot of space as to how such a book might be written about being alone, about being um, damaged in some way, and about memory and about ordinary day. The, the book, um, everyone, um, Lowell himself, when he saw the early chapters, a wonderful early chapter on her, her friendship with Billie Holiday, and wrote to her to say, that's fun, I'm going to read and see what you're, how you're going to do with me in the book. And obviously Mary McCarthy was really, Mary McCarthy was, you know, tremendous gossip. So what's going to happen? And of course, what she did was she left him out. He's mentioned it twice. She has other things, busier. She's, she's got other things to consider more important, perhaps, than the antics of, a, of an estranged husband. Her childhood in, in Kentucky, how she's living her life, various memories, books she's reading, and just things she's thinking about. It's, it's, it's an exquisite book. And um, she published, she was writing that over, over, the, over all those years, published it after his death in, 19, in 1979. And um, she was also writing essays for the New York Review of Books, really, which were could easily be collected into a volume, which, which they were called Seduction and Betrayal, which is her best book of essays. It's a remarkable book. It goes through you know, people like Sylvia Plath or the Brontes, and the, but particularly interested in Ibsen, quite a lot on Ibsen, and a, quite a lot that really is about her own relationship to Lowell and Blackwood. I mean, that triangle business, being looking at various Ibsen plays in which the, the, the one woman is up against two people, you know, you know, a man and a woman. And she writes very beautifully about that. There's a feeling that she got what was really happening to her and found two particular ways of dealing with it. Well, three, one, writing those letters, which became their thoughts. Two, um, writing a strange, exquisite, chiseled memoir, a stroke novel. You know, Norman Mailer in Armies of the Night, 1969, was, was writing, you know, the novel as history, history as the novel. He was trying to do something new to the novel, but so was she. But she was moving inwards as he was moving outwards. And I think she has had more influence, that book. And the third thing she did was she wrote the essays. And in, in doing all that, and in the finding of these letters um, that she wrote, um, which, I, which I review in the London Review books for this issue, and the work Saskia Hamilton has been doing with the letters between Lowell and Bishop, with the letters between, with Lowell's letters, um, and, and the reissue of Hardwick's books. Um, I think it's an interesting piece by Laurie Moore saying, uh, this is the new Bloomsbury. We have, ladies and gentlemen, we have a new group of people, uh, you know, from Robert Silvers 
to Mary McCarthy, to um, Lowell, um, Carolyn Blackwood, Lucian Freud, uh, you know, Elizabeth Bishop. So we have a sort of circle of people. And at the centre of the circle, in the same way as we had, you know, Virginia Woolf, we have Lowell and Hardwick um, and, uh, and Caroline Blackwood. I didn't have a space in the piece because it just it, it isn't about Blackwood, but Blackwood became a really interesting stylist. And she, when she married Lowell, she really hadn't written anything. And she first wrote a memoir called For All As I Found There. And then began to write these novels, these short novels, um, I think some of which are actually Great Granny Webster, The Fate of Mary Rose, Corrigan, these are really very good books. Uh, there's a bit of a t- oh, 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 also a book, an extraordinary book called The Last of the Duchess, in which she became absolutely fascinated by the Duchess of Windsor, particularly her, her decline, and um, her relationship with her maid. And um, I mean, these are really gothic, strange. Um, she isn't afraid of any form of physical decay. She loves physical decay. I mean, in the book. And so she and her first novel, in, sorry, The Stepdaughter came out. Yeah. Before, in 76 or something, didn't it? When, yeah, yeah, when all this was going on, so she was writing. Yeah, so, she, so she's writing too, but she's, also, but she's writing in a particular way too that her style is really uh, worth attending to. So that, yeah, we have, um, we have a new Bloomsbury, unfortunately. I mean, I've got bad news for you. And we're going to have many, many more books. There are going to be thousands of books on this matter. So we're here at the beginning of, I think, what's going to be a big industry and we're going to have all movies about these people. The way that you're talking now and, and also in the piece, I get the sense that you think that, that the books that Hardwick wrote in the 70s are, well, maybe, well, better is such a crude word, but uh, or oh, more I, enjoying, had more influence, or, or better than the dolphin. That what she, quite a clever, strategic person she was. In other words, that she worked out, what am I, how am I going to deal with this? And one of them was, was to write a really, really good book and a book that would be so strange that it would speak to the future. That there's the chances now of, the, of a garrulous male poet going on about his life and his loves and he's flitting to New York and back to London and Caroline and Elizabeth, which will I go with? No one will listen to that guy ever again. I mean, that's, that's history. That's over. I mean, you see it again and again. I saw... Um, just the weekend, even, you know, people just told me Sleepless Nights. Sleepless Nights has become this book um, that is a bedside book, that is a book you dip into, that is a book you can actually see. I, I mean, there are just um, sentences and, and paragraphs in it that are just so exquisitely chiseled and also so personal, so filled with nerves. It's almost as though something like the tone Sylvia Plath used in those last poems has been adapted and taken over by a middle-aged woman living alone in New York who happens to be extraordinarily intelligent and sensitive and serious. And uh, she, the essay on Plath, she, she really deplores Plath's cruelty and Plath's, you know, blaming everybody. It, it's an interesting essay on Plath, but, but the style that, that, I mean, that, 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 I mean, I'm talking about that staccato sentence, that, that business of no word here is extra. Whereas with Lowell, almost every word, every song extra. And there was, there was, there was, I mean, Lowell comes to us now in three or four different guises, but certainly there's no, I mean, I, I know Michael Hoffman, for example, in the London Review of Books has, has really written to say how much he admires these, these late sonnets. But I think he's alone in that. Um, I, 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 I don't see a new movement arising. It would be very difficult, for example, I mean, really difficult to um, in, really put, put Lowell on a curriculum. 
And uh, in America, that's one of the things that really matters because you, you don't really have a wide, uh, as you do in Ireland, say, or England, you know, wide ordinary readership for poetry. So what's happening in the university is, tends to matter enormously. You couldn't put Lowell, you couldn't bring Lowell into students. You just... They would, uh, Not even for the Union Dead and some yeah, studies those, in the yeah, area. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps those calm middle poems in the book for the Union Dead but certainly, if you brought in sleepless nights, you'd get weeks out of it. I mean, people would really, people would really, really respond to it. So, you know, in this, I mean, if, if anybody won in this bad business, um, Hardwick did. So, when Bishop says that art just isn't worth it, that maybe that I mean, the the, the art that won is Hardwick. That Hardwick's art came out of came out of it. And if, in some way, she was writing in response to Lowell doing this really quite terrible thing with her letters then. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a wonderful moment in Sleepless Nights. Um, you can see in the letters, the letters are really useful um, because you can see she had a big fight with Lowell and, and Blackwood over this house in Castine. She wanted to sell the house and keep the barn and use the money from the sale of the house to do up the barn. Under main arcane law, she needed, because she was still married to Lowell, she needed her husband's signature, even though she owned the house. Um, the house had been willed to her by Lowell's cousin, which made things complicated. Lowell just wouldn't sign and Blackwood got involved because she thought maybe that this was doing her son with Lowell out of something so she went to her solicitors in England like she was so rich why did she do this in the meantime Hardwick's going to lose the sale of the house so she's going I'm ballistic in these letters you have to just sign and um, in Sleepless Nights just now that she's just um, she's thinking she's in the barn she's there on the edge of the ocean she's thinking about everything except this She's got so many things on her mind. And you realize, reading the letters, oh, this has to be deliberate. This way of leaving out the rage, that the rage was in the letters about how this barn came to be hers. And she instead writes about the sea and being alone. And mentions Lowell in passing, not by name, but as someone who once was here, was gone now. Just just a flitting reference to him as though, though, you know, she's got many other more important things to consider. So everyone... Who hasn't read it must go away and read Sleepless Nights. Oh, yeah, and also the, the book of Let. No, no, I didn't say. I didn't say forget. <laughs> Look, read Waking Early Sunday Morning. Read the Fourth of July in Maine. Read Water, the first poem in For the Union Dead. Um, read For the Union Dead. Read, read uh, to speak of the world that is in marriage. Read Skunkar. I mean, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not dismissing Lowell. in this in in this moment, Lowell star has faded for many reasons but one of them has to do with i think the the, the sort of untrammeled the the, the 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 sort of display of masculine ease is not something that's fashionable at the moment it, it, um, i think guys are not required to be at ease with their masculinity anymore and he certainly was and was great sense of privilege about him but he, he was a great poet um, and uh but Sleepless Nights is the book that people are reading now. Very much. Oh, oh, sorry. I also wanted to say that that the book itself, I mean, the, the big book, the book of uh, the book of letters, is really readable. In other words, you can start at the beginning and go, "Oh my God! Oh, what's happening now?" And so it is actually, you know, it's not just one of those dry books of letters. You think, "Oh my God, this is for research people." No, and no, that's actually, it's actually, um, yeah. it's actually good stuff. It's actually re- very enjoyable. And as I say, it's really, it's really beautifully edited. It's a really good book. You can read Colm's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Jacqueline Rose on Camus' The Plague, Catherine Rundle on The World's Oldest Shark, 
and Paul Taylor on how to model an epidemic. And you can find Colm's piece on Lucian Freud and the other pieces he mentioned in our online archive and on the episode page for this podcast on our website. To subscribe to the LRB and get your first 12 issues for just £12, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. The LRB also now has a daily newsletter, Diverted Traffic, featuring a different piece from the paper's archive every day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed, and the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up to that, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic.